Would you pray with me for a moment? Holy wisdom, holy word, come and take flesh in the eyes of these your servants so that we may behold your glory this morning. Amen. What do you do when you fall short? Let's say there's an area of your life that matters to you, maybe uh, something at work, and you're just not hitting the mark. You're not making your numbers. And let's suppose that there's something in you that begins to have an inkling of a suspicion that it's not only something that you're doing or not doing, but it's something about who you are that's missing the mark. It's something about your character that slowly begins to dawn on you. Maybe there's somebody on your team who always gets the credit and you realize that you're underperforming so that your team will look bad and everyone will realize that you were the one who was doing all the heavy lifting all along. Or how about for you parents? What do you do when you fall short? Now, uh, some of you, uh, looking from the outside, it looks like your relationship to your kids is just hunky-dory all the time. Uh, I'm not talking to you folks. Uh, your day will come. Uh, I'm talking to those parents in, in the congregation today who are struggling. Let us suppose that there is something about your kids that you've begun to notice. Maybe they're getting in trouble at school. Maybe they have a creeping anxiety. And there's something, an inkling of a suspicion that you begin to have that maybe the problem here is not so much with what is going on with the kid, but something that's going on with me as a parent, something I'm doing or not doing or something that I am or have failed to be. What do you do? Best I can tell, there are several basic human reactions to situations like these that I, I uh, tend to think that they fall under the category of what I call the morality of Margaritaville. <laughs> Y'all remember that old, I mean, anybody who's ever listened to oldies radio, you know that Jimmy Buffett uh, song, the guy is kind of He's loafing around Key West. Uh, he's, he's got his sandals on. He's got booze in the blender. And uh, it comes to the chorus, and uh, you realize that he thinks he's wasting his own life. At the end of the first verse, it says, uh, some people say there's a woman to blame, but it's nobody's fault. That's number one. It's nobody's fault. It's just life. It's just one of them things. It's just bad luck. Whatever it is that's going on in my life, it's just I can't control it. Well, then you get to the uh, second verse, and he says, some people say, there's a, there's a relationship in my life that's not what it ought to be, and hell, it could be my fault. It begins to dawn on him that maybe I'm, I'm the common denominator in all these problems. And then you get to the third and final verse, where the philosophical wisdom of Jimmy, Jimmy Buffett really shines through, and he says, uh, some people say there's a woman to blame, but I know it's my own damn fault. Now, sorry to use bad language in church, but uh, I'm in, in part drawing your attention to the way that even throwaway beach music has an idea of 
salvation and damnation in it. I know it's my fault and I'm damned. I'll never be any different. Now, uh, a lot of you see these same patterns in your life. Maybe you've had a, a therapist or even a good friend who can help you point out to yourself the ways that uh, you're living in the morality of Margaritaville. Maybe, uh, maybe you're avoiding your problems. Maybe you're not owning up to what is and isn't your fault. Maybe you feel under a curse and that you'll never be any different. Or maybe uh, you've got booze in the blender and you're just not, you're just going to self-medicate and not worry about any of it. But every once in a while, something begins to sneak in and you say, maybe, just maybe this is my fault. I'm curious what you tend to do at that moment. Now, most of the time, uh, if, if we've gotten past uh, the, the, the morality of Margaritaville, if we've gotten to the place where we know that we're part of the problem, generally, again, I'm broad brushing here, but generally I think what most of us do most of the time is we decide we're going to try harder. So on the way out the door, the two-year-old, uh, right you know, always out the door, puts peanut butter on your favorite pantsuit, and you realize that you've been reacting out of anger, and so you decide you're going to try harder. And what that looks like is you listen to one of those annoying podcasts about contemplative parenting. Or maybe you uh, Google something about how to get in touch with your anger issues. Or, or at work, you decide that what trying harder looks like is, is working even harder to hit your numbers. And so you're going to show everybody um, that you can do it and effortlessly at that and then people will know that you have value to the company. But is that all there is? Are those the only options available to you? I imagine uh, quite a few of you have been trying for years to try harder. And as soon as uh, one problem gets taken care of here, one fire gets put out, there's another one over here, and you realize that the common denominator in all of these is you. And it's not about solving your problems, it's about solving you. So what do you do? What if I told you that there is a way for you to deal with your own failure that will not crush you, a way that will be truthful about who you are while at the same time giving you a way out. That you can be helped to get to the bottom of who you are and really be different. Now, I've gone into this whole long thought experiment uh, because unfortunately, uh, I'm going to have to draw your attention to another one of your failures. I'm really sorry about this, but there's just no way around it. I'm a, I, I want to draw your attention to something that our Lord said, and he calls it a command, and says that it's very important, but it just happens to be something none of us are really doing. Jesus said this morning, just a few moments ago, that we are to love one another in the way that he loved us. Just, just uh, 
Just let that sink in for a minute. Look around at your brothers and sisters here in the congregation, maybe the people in the row ahead of you, and ask yourself, am I loving that person the way that God loves me? Am I regularly putting my desires to the side so that I can serve them? Or if we want to get down to brass tacks, am I spending my money to satisfy their needs the way that I'm spending it to satisfy my perceived needs? Yeah, I didn't think so. Now, you might be saying to yourself, uh, hang on here a second, Deacon Joe. Uh, surely you're taking this all a little bit too seriously. When Jesus told us to love each other the way that he loves us, surely he knows we're never going to do that. Surely what he means is that uh, it's, it's a fine thing indeed when uh, we, we have feelings of love that well up in us uh, for the people that we go to church with. That, that would be like saying uh, that we're supposed to fly to the moon. He knows that we're not supposed to do that. He knows we can't. I mean, he's the son of God and we're just us. To that, I guess I would point you to Jesus' own words. He says, this is the way that the world will know that we are his disciples. This is how people on the outside will know who we are. Do you know why the church is losing authority to speak to the moral issues of our day? You know why? Well, we hear lots of answers. You know, do you know why our young people have little or no interest in the gospel? People say, oh, it's the rising secularism of our society or it's uh, scandals in the church. Those are all just symptoms. The reason that the church is losing steam in the contemporary world is because of the sentimentality of God's people. The sentimentality of God's people. Now, what do I mean by sentimentality? The historian Jacques Barzun defined sentimentality as the feeling, any feeling that shuts out action, real or potential. It's a self-centered species of fantasy and make-believe. In one of William James' novels, he, he had a perfect portrait of sentimentality as a woman who went to the opera and shed sweet tears for the plight of the heroine on stage. Meanwhile, her coachman sat outside in the freezing rain and nearly froze to death. It's emotion that is not tied to the real world, emotion that has nothing to do with being different. Sentimentality, we might say, is a man who is in love in his heart but never asked the girl out for a date. In the church, we might say that sentimentality is admiring the things that Jesus said as noble ideas to aspire, aspire to while enjoying the sonorous tones of the liturgy from the prayer book, but never actually wanting to be different. And of course, everywhere we look, the New Testament absolutely hates sentimentality. Don't, don't, uh, 
Don't just love in word and idea, but in action. You can't say that you love God in heaven if you hate your brother. That makes no sense. When Jesus says that we are to love each other as he loves us, he means it. Because after all, he loves us as his own dear children. And a father would never ask a child to do something that they didn't think the child could do, right? So if we take Jesus at his word about his command to love one another, what are we to do? What if I told you that there was a love that is available to you that is always put into action? What if I told you that there is one who always pursues his beloved, even at the cost of his very life, and he makes that love, passionate love, available to us? This scene in John 13 takes place as Jesus is reclining at the, the last meal with his disciples and friends. Judas has just gone out to betray Jesus to the very people who the next day will kill him. As soon as Jesus gets up from the table and goes out into the darkness, Jesus says that at this moment, he is glorified. Listen to how many times he uses this word glory. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him at once. Why is Jesus talking about glory so much all of a sudden? What does He mean by that? Well, there, there are two things, I think. First, glory is the outward manifestation of an inward nature. Remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, uh, I tell you, not even, uh, you know, he says, consider the lilies of the field. Not even Solomon in all of his glory was arrayed, decked out like one of these. Why is that? Because the bloom of a flower is the flower's glory. A flower in bloom is a flower in all of its flowerness. It's being a flower. It's doing what it's supposed to do. Or like my granny used to say, uh, look at this little black-eyed Susan. It's just blooming its little heart out. It's being what it, what it was put on earth to be. Glory is a thing's inner being being made known, co coming to be manifest. So then in essence, Jesus is saying, what I am on the inside is being revealed even now. My intentions, my heart for you and for the world are being made known. And even at this moment when the events of my life are being taken out of my hands, even now, my life is taking on its greatest meaning and significance. Now, uh, that's kind of odd. Because normally, don't we think of glory as something that is revealed at a person's greatest autonomy and power? You know, the, the symbols of glory when somebody hits a three-pointer and walks away, 
You know, this is, this is a glory pose. But Jesus says this is his glory pose. And that's because Jesus' glory is not like ours. You know, for, for human beings, what gives us weight and significance, the things that bring meaning into our lives, uh, those things can be taken away. And if we're glorying in them, when the thing that gives us glory is taken away, we're, we're left without weight or meaning or significance. We feel like we don't matter. And it's also good to note that what we glory in is often intimately related to who we love and who loves us. Does anyone make you feel like you matter more than your kids? more than your spouse. And here's the thing with our glory and our love. In every act of human love, there is always something mixed into it that contains a trace of fear and possessiveness and something that is not love. Remember years ago, I had a good friend. When we were about 15 or 16, he went down to Tallahassee, Florida to the FSU baseball camp. And by Tuesday night, he realized he didn't have any way to wash his clothes. And so he calls his mom and asks her to bring him some laundry detergent. And she does. She drives seven hours to Tallahassee and all the way back to North Georgia to take him some laundry detergent. And you could say, oh, look how much she loves her son. She'll just do anything for her son. But those of us who knew that relationship from the inside saw that there was a possessiveness there. There was a fear there. There was a fear that she would lose him to the same addictions that she lost her older son to, which in turn she did, of course. Because love that attempts to possess and constrain, it's not really love at all. Here's the good news, folks. God's love is not like ours. It's pure it is utterly simple. It's direct. It's honest. It's not afraid of the truth. Jesus delights in us. God delights in his relationship with us, but he doesn't need us in the same way that we need one another. So strong is Christ in his love that he doesn't have to run from the truth. He doesn't run from betrayal or scorn but he goes out with courage to meet them. Christ tells each of us what he tells Judas and Peter on this same night. Go ahead, betray me, deny me. There is nothing that you can do that will change my love for you. Jesus says to us, I know that the only way that I could convince you of my intentions toward you is on the cross. We can believe in the love of God because Christ's love has been distilled to the utter by his death. On the cross, Jesus shows us that God's love for us goes all the way down. 
The roots of God's love run so deep that it can never be confused by the tangled web of human intentions. The roots of God's love run so deep that it can't even be pulled out by human violence or torture. Go ahead, do your best. I'll still love you. There is nothing that we can do to stop God from loving us and the whole world. Because that's just what God is. God is love. Can you see that? Do, do you see that? Do you regularly take time to put that thought at the center of your mind and the center of your heart and the center of your intentions? Uh, I would hate for you to leave this sermon this morning and on the way out, shake my hand and say, pretty decent sermon there, Pastor Joe. You showed me this morning uh, that Jesus loves me and uh, I need to love others, so I'm going to go out and try harder. No, 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 no. Thousand times no. This sermon is not about you trying harder to love one another. This sermon is about the gift that is made available to you by God in Christ Jesus that allows you to participate in the love that's already always there for you. Anytime that you're lacking in that love, anytime that there's a situation where you say, boy, I, I blew it. There, there was some way that I reacted there I know that I shouldn't have done that because I don't have enough love in my heart. That's a, that's a start. That, that's, a, that's a good and necessary start. But it's, what's, it, it's what you do next that matters. And it's not about beating yourself up or trying harder or really buckling down. It's about seeing the glory of God in the abandonment and betrayal of Jesus Christ and what that means for you until you see until you see God's love for you you will never be able to give it to others the reformer john calvin said in the cross of christ as in a magnificent theater the goodness of god is displayed in the whole world and nowhere has the love of god shone more brightly than on the cross what are you doing to bring that theater of God's love on the cross to the center of your attention? How are you looking to Jesus? You know, that's something that uh, preachers say a lot. Look to Jesus. Behold Christ. Put, put God at the center But this morning, I, I want to just be as concrete as I possibly can and as practical. It's, you know, a lot of times we say, look to Jesus. What does that mean? How, assuming that you want to be different, and I think that's the vast majority of you, assuming that you know there are some things about you that need to be transformed by the love of God so that that's what's just, it's just natural. It's just what tumbles out of you. Assuming that's true, how do you go about seeing the theater of God's love for you? I want to make three quick practical suggestions. First, 
If you want to see the theater of God's glory, you need to be honest about the part that you have taken in the tragedy of the play. Take stock of where you are and who you are, especially, especially when you find yourself in an hour of darkness. When you find yourself like Peter in a place where you could swear you never knew him. Or worse, when you find yourself in a place where you could swear he never knew you. There is a a light ahead, but I can assure you, The rooster's going to crow. There will come a time when you need to, to realize that. But to get there, you have to take stock of your anxiety and your loneliness and see in them not something to be run from, but precisely something that God might be putting in your life that allows you to see that even in the darkness, the light of Christ is shining through. That in your darkness, in that moment, for such a time as this, for this hour, I have come. That's first. Secondly, what do we mean by how do we look to Jesus? Well, uh, let's just do something preachers don't like to do and be very literal about that. Look at Jesus. The way to do that is by um, looking at the renderings of Jesus in religious art. And ask the Holy Spirit to show you your part in the painting. To show you the person of Christ as He is for you. And friends, He will do it. We're not talking about art criticism or wandering through a gallery. We're we're talking about uh, spiritual activity. And He'll do it. He's done it for me. Uh, He's done it for others. Tex told me the other day about uh, a friend of his from college who was in uh, the Uffizi the or whatever the gallery is that has Saint, uh, um, the incredulity of St. Thomas, the Caravaggio painting that's our masthead on the website. And she had never been particularly religious uh, or cared, but she said, I saw this man, Jesus, and I knew that he was real. I knew that he, it wasn't just something that happened back then. I knew that it was real. That can happen for you, and it's very, it's very simple. Thirdly, I would suggest that you look at Jesus. You look to Jesus in the pages of Scripture. That when you read God's Word in the morning, that you don't just skip over it. That you ask the Holy Spirit, again, praying in the Spirit, Lord, give me one word, give me one phrase that I can just sit with. Or to, uh, or to imagine the scenes in the gospel as though you're there and what you would smell and see and how it would feel to you. Put yourself in the story of Jesus and find there the plot of your own life. And He will show you. There are lots of other practical things that you can do to, to participate in the love of God. And if, if you need any help in this area, I know all of our staff would love to, to talk to you about that. Or if you have expertise in this area, I would love to have coffee with you and hear where God has shown himself to you. What are the, what are the practices that work for you? But let me say again that what you try to do in seeing the love of God and all of its life-changing reality 
will only change you to the extent that you receive it as a gift of God. It's like uh, being in New Orleans in a restaurant and finishing up supper and you go back out onto the busy street and you realize that you have inadvertently become part of a parade that is just happening down the street. You don't know where it's going or what it's for or in whose honor, but they hand you a clave and say, come on! And you're participating in something that you didn't make. You're just doing it for the sheer joy of what you've seen. Sometimes that will come when we're looking to Jesus and sometimes it will come to you like a bolt out of the blue. But however it comes, it will be a gift of God. I want to tell you about one time that that happened for me that way. I have a friend named Jed that I've known for over 20 years through thick and thin. And when you've been that close to anybody for 20 years, there are ways that... uh, the mistakes of your past tangle up your, even your best intentions toward one another. And you try to make things better, but everything you say gets taken the wrong way. And this, this was kind of where we were at a few years ago. And it was about this time that my son Simon decided that he wanted to learn how to fish. He, he just, he just, he wanted to know how to fish. And I knew that I couldn't teach him. I didn't know the first thing about fishing, but I thought, you know, I know what we'll do. We'll get together with Jed and uh, he knows all about it and it'll give us a way to be together without having to talk about our feelings all the time. So I bought rods for me me and Cy and off we went, the three of us, down through the brambles and the thickets all the way down to a really wild section of the Chattooga River. And Jed said that he would take Cy off uh, a little bit upriver and show him how to cast. And meanwhile, I was going to try to get out into the middle of this fierce flow and, and uh, you know, figure out how to do it. So there I was, got out on this rock, big rock out in the middle, and I got all set. I managed to squint long enough to get my lure tied on there, had everything ready, and I reared back to make my big first cast and... Just chaos ensued. Something was stuck in the reel. Sometimes the line gets wound too tight on there. And I had just made a tremendous mess of everything. That line was wrapped around me and my backpack and around itself and around the end of the rod and woven intricately through the six hooks on this one lure. And the more that I tried to straighten out the tangles, the more of a mess I made. And I realized I'm, I'm going to have to try to make my way back to shore to cut all this mess apart and just start all over again. And as I stood up from a squatting position, something about the current, and, so, and I slipped on a rock and hit my behind and really hurt my tailbone. Just as I'm sitting there in the middle of the Chattooga River, feeling cursed in my luck, and lack of skill, I look up and realize that what I have gotten myself tangled up in was nothing less than the love of God. Why? Because I looked upstream and there is my four-year-old son making beautiful, long-arced casts into a pool below. And I could see how much my friend 
loved me. I could see it. All this time, I thought the only way that I could have love in this relationship with this person was by doing it myself, trying to do something for them. But then I realized that it was something that I received as a gift. And one of these days I'll learn, and I hope you will too, that our ability to participate in God's love is never a matter of what we can make right out of the reservoir of our affections. No. Participating in the love of God is about what has been made right in the clear stream of mercy that is even now bearing us away to a place we have yet to see. Amen.